You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. Let's begin by bowing in prayer. Father, may your word today be to us the joy and rejoicing of our hearts. In your word is truth and light, and the unfolding of your word brings light. It is bread for our souls, and we pray that in this we might see and behold our Savior, that you would teach us about him and about ourselves and our need for him. We ask that in this time that you would help us to be good hearers and doers of your word. We pray for grace not only to understand, but also to appropriate and to apply your word to our hearts and our lives. Thank you that you are sufficient in all these things, and thank you that you give us the grace in all these things as well. We commit this time to you. We pray that it might be for our edification and equipping in your word. In Christ's name, amen. John chapter 4, the Gospel of John chapter 4. We will read together verses 7 through verse 14. John chapter 4. Verse 7, there came a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Therefore the Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, being a Jew, ask me for a drink since I am a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered and said to her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. She said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? You're not greater than our father Jacob, are you, who gave us the well and drank of it himself and his sons and his cattle? Jesus answered and said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never thirst. But the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. You and I are the beneficiaries of John chapter 4. Uh, we are as much a beneficiary of the events recorded here as ever much as ever ever as much as the woman who met Jesus at the well that day. She was a beneficiary in the sense that she came to the well. She saw a rather ordinary stranger sitting there, and she had an uh, a an ordinary looking stranger. He was not ordinary. She saw a rather ordinary looking stranger sitting there, and she had a conversation which resulted in her blessing of salvation and forgiveness. And you and I, as it were, get to sit in and listen in on this conversation. And it does us well, I think, once in a while to remind ourselves that every event in Scripture that is recorded is recorded for our benefit. The things that happened were not just for the benefit and blessing of the people to whom they happened, but you and I, as it were, get to sit here almost 20 centuries later and sit in on a conversation that Jesus had with a woman of Samaria. And we get to see it played out before us, and we get to see how Jesus handled this woman, and how it is that the Savior brought salvation to one of his lost sheep. And we get to benefit in that way from the things that are written here. And as we've been going through this, I've been encouraging you to observe in here things that you and I can learn from Jesus as the model soul winner. 
We look to Jesus as one who knew what he was doing when he brought salvation and the message of grace to a woman who needed that. And so we are trying to glean from this encounter things that Jesus did in his own encounter in bringing this woman the message of salvation. Last week, we noticed that Jesus did two things, just quickly by way of review. The first thing that Jesus did was he started with a very ordinary thing, a very natural thing, before he swung that conversation to the supernatural. He didn't begin by introducing himself as the Messiah. He didn't begin by condemning this woman for her sin. He started off with just a very ordinary request, give me a drink, asking for a drink. Now, Jesus, all the while, knew exactly where the conversation was going, He knew where he was going to take it, and he knew that rather quickly, and we'll see in verse 10, he swings the conversation from the natural to the supernatural, from the normal or the physical to the spiritual. The second thing that Jesus did was he cut across all of the cultural and racial barriers that separated himself from this woman. There were three reasons culturally why Jesus should never have said a word to this individual. Number one, because he was a Jew and she was a Samaritan. Jews had no dealings, did not use the same utensils with Samaritans. There were hostile relationships there. And normally, naturally, a Jew just wouldn't speak to a Samaritan. Second, he was a man and she was a woman. And men did not speak to women in public. Men did not even speak to their wives in public in that culture. And third, she was an immoral woman. Not just was she a Samaritan and a woman, but she was immoral. And everybody in the region and everybody in the village, everybody in that town knew of her history, they knew how immoral she was. So those three reasons are three reasons why Jesus should never have even spoken to her. But he did, and he asked her, give me a drink. Now I suggested last week that her response to that in verse 9 was a curt or rude response to his request. She was not just surprised that he, a man, was asking her a woman, and that he, a Jew, was asking her a Samaritan, and that he, a rabbi, was asking her an immoral person for a drink of water, Not just was he crossing the cultural barriers and everything that should have separated them, but she is more than just surprised. She is being rude to him. She is playing on the racial division between Jews and Samaritans. Jews did not use the same utensils with Samaritans. Jews didn't really deal with Samaritans in that way. They sort of kept each other at arm's length. And she is playing on the racial tensions and saying to him, in effect, this. How is it that you, being a Jew, now are in a position to ask me, a Samaritan, for a drink of water? As if to suggest, you Jews have nothing to do with us until you need something from us. And then once you need something from us, all of a sudden you're willing to acknowledge our existence. So here it is, a very awkward position that now you, being who you are, would be in a position to ask me, being who I am, for a drink of water. Oh, how the tables have turned. It's kind of a snarky... Somebody asked me last week, is snarky really a word? By the way, has anybody heard the term snarky before? Okay, good. I'm not totally out of my element. It's sort of a snarky, rude, uh, snippy comment that she is offering to him. And what I want you to notice, before we look at Jesus' response in verse 10, what I want you to notice is two things about how Jesus handles her. First, Jesus did not sharply rebuke her for her tone and for her offensive comment. He didn't sharply rebuke her. Even though she was being rude to him, he didn't say to her, Now you listen to me, you immoral wretch, and I'll tell you a thing or two. He didn't get into that at all. He didn't rebuke her for her tone toward him. In fact, he didn't, he didn't really even, this is the second thing, he didn't even pick up on the racial tensions that she was bringing out in her statement. He didn't even throw the ball back to her. It's as if he goes right around what she did, which was an offense to him, and takes the conversation where it needs to go. He didn't, not only did he not rebuke her for her tone and for her rudeness, 
Jesus did not even engage her very rude statement. He didn't begin to say, okay, now look, I know that there have been racial divisions between Jews and Samaritans, and I know that the Jews have done this to the Samaritans. We have to keep in mind the context. So let me offer you to your reason why Jews treat Samaritans this way. Nor did he say, you know what, you Samaritans really don't have anything to boast of as well because you have a whole list of things that you've done to us Jews that have contributed to this hostility between the two of us. This whole conversation could have turned into a racial mudslinging match, but Jesus didn't allow it to go there. Not only did he not rudely rebuke her, in a very gentle way, he really didn't even pick up with where her conversation, where she was taking the conversation. He went right around that, and he didn't even take offense to her, at her comment, when she intended it to be offensive. Verse 9 was intended to be, I think, an offensive comment. And Jesus didn't take offense at it. Now listen, if you're going to share your faith, you're going to have to learn this lesson. You cannot have thin skin. Having thin skin is not a virtue. Too many people wander around with such thin skin that they take offense and they spend all of their time licking their wounds. If this happened to me and this person said that to me, if you're going to share your faith, you cannot have thin skin. Because if you do, and if you take offense easily... Not only will you be turned off immediately in any kind of a witnessing encounter, but you won't even want to begin to witness. Why? Because you think you're the center of the universe, and if the person you're witnessing to doesn't agree with you, you're going to take offense at that. And you're not even going to want to engage in a conversation and have them say to you, you know what, what you believe is really foolish. You believe that a God died on a cross and rose again from the dead 2,000 years ago, and that I can have salvation by free just by trusting in Him? What kind of a foolish, idiotic religion is that? That is just an opium for the masses. And you are ignorant and foolish and stupid to believe such silliness and such trite. And you really shouldn't even waste your time. You can take offense to that? Most people would. You can't. You can't have thin skin. You know what I think? I think the measure of your, the measure of your pride is the quickness with which you are offended. If you get offended easily, I believe it is primarily because of one reason, and that is pride. Because you think of yourself so highly, when somebody else doesn't agree with you or treat you the way you think you should be treated, you get offended. Jesus was not offended at this. He is taking here the scorn from sinners and hostility from sinners. She intended it to be a very rude, hostile, and offensive comment, and he brushes it off. And in a very gentle way, he walks right past the offense because he is intent on saving her soul. He walks right past the offense doesn't take up an offense and say, well, if you're going to treat me that way, I'll just go somewhere else and get a drink of water. I can walk the half a mile into town with the disciples. No, no. He had something in mind, something he was intending to do, and he stepped right past the offense and got to the issue at hand, which was her need for him. And he does so in verse 10. In a very gentle way, he points out her ignorance. If you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living waters. If you knew something, And what he is doing is he is pointing up her ignorance. This woman was ignorant of two different things. She was ignorant, first of all, of the gift of God, and second, of who she was talking to. Now, I think these are two different things. Some people say the gift of God here is Jesus. Jesus is the gift of God. He's called in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, I think it is, God's indescribable gift. And so he is the gift of God. And so Jesus is saying, look, if you knew that God gave his son as a gift to the world, you wouldn't be saying this. I don't think the gift that's being spoken of here, though Jesus is God's gift to us, I don't think the gift here described is just the Lord Jesus. Nor do I think that the gift here described is the Holy Spirit. I think it is broader than that, and it encompasses both of those and so much more. I think in this context, the gift that's being described is salvation itself. 
If the gift that is described is Jesus, then Jesus is saying this. If you know, knew who I am and who it is that you're speaking to, if you know those two things, that's saying the same thing over again, isn't it? I think he's describing two different things. If you knew what it is that God has given to you and the offer that is being given to you, and if you knew who it was that you're speaking to, two different things. The whole context is really about salvation and God's offer of salvation. You remember back in chapter 3, he offered it to Nicodemus and saying to Nicodemus, you must be born again. The end of chapter 3, verse 36, he who believes in the Son has what? Eternal life. The context is salvation. And he who does not obey the Son will not see that eternal life, but the wrath of God abides on him. And then later on in chapter 14, Jesus describes what he is that he's offering to her, the living water. At the end of verse 14, a well of water springing up to eternal life. What he is describing by the gift of God is nothing less than salvation. Now that involves Christ, it involves the Holy Spirit, but it also is the new birth, justification, sanctification, glorification, everything that is necessary for the sin-parched, thirsty soul he is offering to her. If you knew the gift of God, that is salvation, and the word translated gift there is a word translated other places as freely. It's a noun form of the adverb translated in the rest of the New Testament as freely. This is the only place it's used as a noun in all of the Gospels, and it's translated here as gift. And it literally means the freeness or the freeliness of it. If you knew what is given to you freely, because that's what salvation is, it is a free gift. That's good news to a sinner, is it not? That salvation is not something you can earn. It's not something you can buy. It's not something you can merit. It's not something you can work for. It's not something you trade God for something else. It's the free gift. It is totally and entirely a gift of God's sovereign grace. It's a free gift. And Jesus is saying, if you knew the free gift of God that he is willing to give to you, and if you knew who it is that you were speaking to, you would have asked me for something else, and I would have given you living water. This woman was entirely ignorant, not only of God's free gift of salvation, but second, of the person that she was speaking of. This is the irony of it. She had walked up to a well on an ordinary day, under an ordinary sun, normal circumstances, something she had done a hundred times before. She had seen this man sitting at the well, probably a sight that she had seen hundreds of times before, because there was nothing abnormal about a traveler sitting next to the well to get refreshment out in the middle of the open square when anybody else would have been traveling through. So she came up to the well and saw something she'd probably seen dozens of times, a Jewish man sitting by the well needing a drink of water. And she probably thought he would have been able to get his own drink of water, but there he is nonetheless. She had no idea who it was that she was speaking to. What an ironic situation, is it not? He is saying to her, if you knew that you were speaking to the one to whom you owe your existence, and if you knew that you were speaking to the one by whom all things came into being, without me nothing came into being that has been come into being, and if you knew that I was the one who created the very water that I'm asking you for, oh, how things would be different. If she knew who she was speaking of and speaking to, what would her response have been? She would have been asking him for something. See, she thought she was in a position to offer to him something, and he is pointing out to her, in reality, you are in no position to offer me anything. I am in a position to provide everything that you need. And if you knew what you needed, and you knew who it was that you were speaking to, you would ask me, the one who was able to provide what you need, and I would give you what you need. You notice how the tables are turned in that encounter? She is she's ignorant of two things. Number one, what it is that God gives that she needs. And second, who he is. Now just file this away in the back of your mind. Before this whole conversation is over, he is going to fill in her ignorance in both of those areas. 
He is going to show her what she needs, and he is going to show her who he is. Those are the two things that he says in verse 10 that you don't know. You don't know what you need, and you don't know who I am. Now, in order to show her what she needs, he's going to address her conscience, and he does that in verse 15. After she says to him, Sir, give me this drink, this living water, so that I will not have to come here to draw all the way here, and so that I will never thirst, he says to her, Go and call your husband. And she's thinking in her mind, technically, I have no husband. So that's what she says. I have no husband. You're right. You've had five husbands. And the one that you now have is not your own. And he is addressing her conscience and the commandment, thou shalt not commit adultery. And she was guilty of it. In order to show her what she needed, he would eventually address her conscience, take her to the law, and do that so that she could come to understand exactly what it is that she needed. Now, in verse 26, he's going to tell her who he is. When she says to him, look, when Messiah comes, he's going to explain all these things. He says to her, I who speak to you am he. So in verse 10, he says, you're ignorant of two things. And by the end of the conversation, he has showed her not only what she needs, what she was ignorant of, but also who he is, which is another thing that she was ignorant of. Marvelous how the Lord does that, right? What are the two things that you and I need to know in order to be saved? Basically, before we're saved, do we really know who it is that we are and what our need are? No, that's the, that's the what our need are, what our need is. That's the horrible condition of man in his lost state. That not only do we, not only are we ignorant of what we need, we are ignorant of our ignorance of what we need. That's the horribleness of being lost. Not only do we not know what our spiritual needs are, but we don't even know that we don't know what our needs are. And that's where this woman was at. And she had to understand two things. Her need and the reality of who he was. That he was able to meet those needs. And it is not until that point that the light dawns on her and she's able to put those pieces together. And we'll cover that when we get to it. But just file that away in the back of your mind for right now. The tables have entirely turned in the conversation because, as, as you notice, she is operating from the vantage point or from the assumption that she is in a position to offer to him something that he needs. And she thinks in her mind that he is in need of her. And what Jesus has done is shown her It is not I who need anything that you can provide, and you are in no position to provide anything for me that is of lasting value. But really, I am the one who is able to provide for you what you truly need. And I think there is, just in this woman's approach to this, something that you will see in your encounters with lost people. Lost people are entirely ignorant of what they need and of who Christ is. And in their ignorance and in their lostness, lost mankind thinks that he is in a position to offer to God something that God needs. He thinks to himself, oh, how fortunate God would be to have me on his team. And God really needs me on the team, and he wants me on the team, and he just can't live without me on his team. And modern gospel presentations are marvelously designed to appeal to that backwards thinking. Because man in his thinking says, God really needs me to provide something for him. There's a me-shaped hole in God's heart that only I can fill. And modern gospel presentations say exactly that. God has a U-shaped hole in His heart that only you can fill. Won't you please come to Him? Jesus is knock, knock, knocking on the door of your heart and He really, really, really wants in. And please, won't you let Him in? He wants to feel loved. He wants to be accepted. He wants in your life. He wants to give you all these things. And Jesus is just dying. He cannot live without you. He wants you so bad. If you just open your heart to Him and allow Him to come in, He'll be so happy. Please make God happy. Gak! Are you kidding me? How backwards is that from the truth? What is the truth? 
The truth is that we are in a position to offer him nothing. Nothing. Not a single righteous deed. Not a single good work. Not a single bit of righteousness. There is nothing in us to commend us to him. He does not need us one whit. Not one bit. We need him to provide everything for us. God, in his essence, is the unsustained sustainer of all things. And he is self-sufficient. He needs absolutely nothing from you and I. Nothing. We come to him because he is God and he provides everything for us. And we are never in it. You cannot be saved if you come to Christ thinking, yeah, I got something to offer God. I want to offer what I can there and we'll sort of have a quid pro quo agreement. He'll give me a little something. I'll give him a little something and we'll exchange. That's not the gospel. That's not Christianity. That's not salvation. Until you come to the point of saying to yourself, I am absolutely nothing. I have nothing to give and nothing to offer. He must provide for me everything. Until you come to that point, I don't believe that you can be saved. You have to come to the end of yourself. You have to die to yourself. And you have to recognize, I have nothing to offer. He must bring me everything. And that's what he's showing her. If you knew who it is who says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and this next phrase I think is a very gentle rebuke, and he would have given you living water. He would have given it to you. Now, in my mind, as I picture this encounter here, this is how I had pictured it prior to this last week. Here is how I had pictured it unfolding. Jesus is sitting at the well, and the woman walks up to the well and begins to draw water. And there is a long period of time, an awkward silence, when nothing is really being said until she gets the water up out of the well. And he says to her, give me a drink. And she says to him, now how is it that you being a Jew ask me a Samaritan woman for a drink, since I am a Samaritan woman? And as she says this, she is pouring him a cup of water out of what she has just drawn from the well. And then she hands it to the Lord, and he drinks it, and then says to her, if you knew what it is that I have to offer, what you need, and if you knew who it is that's saying this to you, you would have asked me and I would have given it to you. That's not quite how I think it unfolded. I think that by the time we get to the end of verse 10, Jesus has yet to take a drink of water. Her rude comment in verse 9, I do not think was accompanied by a cup of cold clear water. I think her rude comment in verse 9 was accompanied by a snub. If you knew who it was, or sorry, why is it that you asked me for a drink since I'm a Samaritan woman? I don't think she's handing him a cup of water at this juncture. In verse 10, he is mildly rebuking her. If you knew who I was, if you knew what I could offer to you, you would have asked me and I would have graciously, freely, and readily given to you what you need. She had snubbed him at his request. And he is saying to her, if you had made of me the same request and an even greater request, I would have freely, graciously, and immediately have given it to you. I wouldn't have upbraided you like you just did me. I wouldn't have refused you like you just did me. And friends, that is our God. God does not dispense salvation meagerly or in small quantities or stingily. Stingily? Stingily. That's a word. It's not. It should be. Stingily. He gives it graciously and generously and freely, the gift of salvation. And that is what he's saying to this woman. If you had made this request of me, I would have given it just like that. I would have given you more than that. I would have given you living water. Now, when I say the word living water, what do you think Jesus means? You're thinking to yourself, salvation, the Holy Spirit, regeneration, new birth, justification, forgiveness of sins. You're picturing in your mind all of the effects and the realities that salvation brings the lasting realities of salvation that go on day to day as sort of bubbling up life that Jesus describes later on. And you're absolutely right to have that picture in your mind because that is what Jesus is speaking of when he talks about living water. But that's not the first thing that would have come into this lady's mind. 
into this woman's mind would not have come any thought of anything spiritual. She still, at this point, the end of verse 10, has no idea that he's speaking of a spiritual reality, which is why in verse 11, she still thinks he is speaking physically. In that day, the term living water was not used as a metaphor for spiritual realities or salvation. In that day, in Jesus' context, the term living water was used to describe water that bubbled, water that moved, water that came right from the source, was alive or active or moving. It would be contrasted with stagnant water. Water that you would pull out of a cistern. Water that would sit in a pool. Water that was in a puddle that didn't move. It didn't bubble up. It was old. You know, the type of water that has a skin on the top. And you got to dip your bucket down below the skin to get the water below that. That's stagnant water. If water was bubbling up out of a fountain or into the bottom of a well, a fresh constant supply of fresh water, a moving water, they would use the term living water to describe that type of water. So when Jesus said to her, if you would ask me, I would have given you living water, she and he are standing at a well that at the very bottom of that well is a spring that constantly bubbled up a fresh supply of water. It was moving water. That was at the bottom of that well. Which is why she says to him in verse 11, Sir, how is it that you would get this living water since you do not have a bucket and the well is deep? She's thinking in her mind that he's speaking of the water at the very bottom of the well. And here he sits without a bucket and without a hundred feet of rope to get to the water at the bottom of the well. How is it that you can get that bubbling fresh living water? In her mind, she's still thinking physical terms. She's still thinking of the water in Jacob's well. So if you're going to provide for me the better water at the bottom of the well, how are you going to get that since you don't have a bucket, you don't have a rope? If you had a bucket and a rope, you wouldn't be asking me for the water in the well. You would have gotten your own well. So where are you going to get the bubbling fresh water? Now this is, Jesus is offering to her, with that analogy, the same thing he offered to Nicodemus back in chapter 3. Do you remember what he said to Nicodemus, chapter 3, verse 5? If you're going to see the kingdom of God, you have to be born again. You have to be born of water and the Spirit. And there, the terms water and Spirit are likened together because the work of the Spirit is a work of regeneration, renewing, refreshing, and washing and cleansing, like we read in Titus chapter 3. So you must be born, and there the the work of water is likened to the work of the Spirit in John chapter 3. Jesus is offering to Nicodemus salvation, new birth, regeneration, the washing of the water of the Spirit, as it were, He is offering to this woman the exact same thing using a different analogy. She hasn't quite caught on to the analogy yet. She doesn't quite understand yet that he is speaking in spiritual terms. And by the way, this is just part of the mastery of how our Lord does this. She thinks he's talking about water. and He's taking her down a course, a conversation. By the time it clicks with her and she realizes where the conversation is going, he's already there with her. He's already taken her to the point where she needs to be mentally and understanding before she even realizes what he has done. So Jesus is offering to her the same thing he offered to Nicodemus. Regeneration, salvation, and that is the term living water. There's also an Old Testament parallel here, an Old Testament background to the term living water. And listen, it is only our, I was going to say ignorance, our lack of familiarity with the Old Testament that causes us to not read verse 10 and say, wow. Wow. Now let me set up the Old Testament picture for you. The term living water was used by the prophets in the Old Testament, sometimes in the Psalms, analogy or allusions to it in the Psalms, but by Isaiah, in Isaiah 55, verse 1, Isaiah says, Ho, and this is an invitation to the nation of Israel, God's people who had rejected him and scorned him. 
Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. That's freely, right? Without money and without cost. And there God, Yahweh, is offering to his people what? Water. You thirst? Come to me. I'm the source of water. I'll give it to you freely. Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 13. For my people have committed two evils. Now listen to this. Two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, to hew for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Jeremiah 17, 13. O Lord, the hope of Israel, all who forsake you will be put to shame. Those who turn away on earth will be written down because they have forsaken the fountain of living water, even the Lord. Now let me set up Jeremiah's context for you. The southern kingdom of the nation of Israel had turned their back on their covenant God, Yahweh, the one true and almighty God. And God sent the prophet to say, look, your religion is a sham. You are immoral. You have turned your back on me. You are guilty of idolatry. And one of the analogies that Jeremiah uses to contrast the supply of God with the supply of idols is in chapter 2, verse 13, where he makes the analogy of a man who forsakes the fountain of living waters to hew out for himself a cistern which cannot hold water, a leaky cistern. So imagine a man who walks out into his yard and finds a big rock and says, I'm going to dig down into this rock, dig way down into the bottom, and hew out a big cistern. And then I will be able to fill the cistern with water, and that cistern will always be for me a supply of fresh water and a supply of life-giving water. So he takes all of the time and all of the effort and all of the money and the expense and all the work that goes into hewing out this big cistern. And he gets all done with it. He's proud of himself. And he says to him, now just says to himself, now I'll just get myself some water. I'll pour the bucket after bucket of water into the big cistern, collect it all, divert the streams or whatever. It'll all fall into the cistern. It'll fill up and it will be for me a supply of water. Refreshing, life-giving water. So he does this and he pours bucket after bucket into the cistern. And guess what he finds out? It's leaky. And as fast as he can pour the bucket in there, it runs out the other side. And no matter how much water he pours into it, the cistern never is able to hold all of the water that he's poured in there. It never will become a supply for him. It will never become a source of refreshment or a source of water. Now, here's the sticker in the whole analogy story. In order to do all of that, he has to forsake a fountain of bubbling, living water. And it's right there. And he could walk up to the fountain and take of that life-giving, bubbling, clear, never-ending supply of water. But he says, no. And he turns from that, and he turns and hews out this cistern that doesn't work, thinks it will supply his needs, thinks it will be a good thing, pours all of this effort into it, only to find out that it does not, and it cannot, and it will not satisfy. Such is the idolater. Now, in the analogy, who is the fountain of living waters? Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 13, My people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters. Who is the fountain of living waters? Yahweh, God, the Lord, the Creator, the Almighty, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He is the fountain of living waters. Now, John chapter 4, Jesus said, If you knew who you were speaking to, you would ask me and I would give you living water. What is Jesus saying? I am God, and I am able to supply. Now, she doesn't get it, right? The only reason she doesn't say, wow, is because she thinks he's speaking in physical terms. But he is pointing to something much more profound. Everything your soul needs, everything your soul desires, everything your soul craves, everything that is necessary, I am willing to provide for you free of cost. Free of cost. It is right here. 
And the only way that you would go without that is if you turn from it to your idols and to hew out a cistern which cannot satisfy. So if God, Yahweh God of the Old Testament, is the fountain of living waters, and Jesus promises to supply to all who come to him and believe on him living water, who does that, what does that mean Jesus is? Who is he then? He is nothing less than the Almighty Yahweh God of the Old Testament. The one that the Jews forsook in order to turn to their idols was Jesus. They forsook him. They turned from him, the source of living waters. This is another way of Jesus showing his total and complete equality with God, that he is God and he is the living waters. Now, Christian, you and I know that this is exactly what we have found in Christ. We have found the one who is the source and supply for all that our soul craves. We needed forgiveness. We needed justification. We needed righteousness. We needed sanctification. We needed to be made holy. We needed to be forgiven of all of our sins. We needed to be given the Spirit of God. We needed to be regenerated and adopted and made a member of God's family. All that we needed, everything that we needed, has come out of the rich supply of who Christ is and what he has done and what he supplies to us. That came at the moment of our salvation. Now, unbeliever, if you happen to be sitting here and you've never repented of your sin and trusted Christ for salvation, then it is because you are not willing to turn from your leaky cistern and come to the one who is the supply of living water, who offers to you free of charge, free of charge, all that your soul desires and craves and needs. Our God is the one who is the living water. That is our Savior, that is our God, that is our King, and as Christians we continually drink from that fountain of life-giving water. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for the blessing that it is to know Christ, to know your Son, and to be brought into communion and fellowship and relationship with you by your Spirit and by regeneration. We thank you that these things have been made ours not by our own acts of righteousness and not by our own deeds, but by your free, full, and sovereign grace. Thank you for providing for us all that we needed in our sin. Thank you for giving us atonement. And thank you for a Savior who has provided so much. We thank you for the confidence also that we can have in the person of Christ that our soul can rest and repose itself on him without hesitation, knowing that he is God, that you are God, that you are our King and our Savior, and we can trust you entirely. O Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we again affirm our confidence and our trust and our thankfulness to you, for you are our God in full, and we love you for who you are. We thank you for your grace. In Christ's name, amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.